Humans. My name is Matt Thielen and I am today here with someone that I only met five minutes ago, but I have been highly, who's been highly recommended to me, Kathy. How are you doing, Kathy? I'm doing well. Thank you, Matt. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm looking forward. To, I've Obviously, we have a mutual friend who's um, spoken very highly and I'm just looking to get to know you today and, and get your input on a, on a subject that, that we're looking at at the Happiness Index for my new book. So, um, but before we kick off, Kathy, um, it would be good to get to know you. Please, please tell tell us about yourself. Anything from personal life through to work life that that you think you'd like to share with us? Thank you. I would love to introduce myself. So, I'm Kathy, and I um, live in Asheville, North Carolina. Grew up in South Africa, and um, relationship has always been what I would call my dharma. Um, it's the lens with which I see the world. It's yep. uh, been a platform for both personal, professional, and spiritual growth for me. Um, I work as a relationship coach, but I also teach a communication technology called the circling method, which Ooh, that is, sounds interesting. It is. It's super interesting. It's basically a practice where you learn to communicate in a very authentic manner real time so it's it's almost like a relational meditation where you pay attention to what's happening inside of you what's happening inside of the other person and the relational field in between you and that's just a very basic way of putting it but really what happens is uh when it's, when it's done well there's this real emergent quality that happens in the space between people and people come away feeling much more connected, much more seen and heard. And so, um, yeah, so this is this is the, the work I do. And I have two daughters and um, love. I'm a lover of life. Love that, Kathy. And one of the subjects before we go into relationships and personal relationships is that we that we cover in the book is the importance of listening to your emotions and in the book I, I always say there's different ways that you can get to that there, there could be a spiritual way to get to that because you might have started to open up to, to different types of spiritual teachings there's a more geeky way um which is the way that i got to it which is i see a, see my emotions as data points like oh that's interesting that's a data point that's telling me something i wonder if i should explore or think about that emotion more but but in for me, how you get there is important, but not as, as important as just understanding that your emotions are, are, are there to inform you and not always there to be feared. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Kathy, based on what you were saying from a relationship perspective? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. I'm sure you're absolutely yeah. who, who isn't a fan of Renee? i Brown? know and if you're not then you know maybe you should go to therapy <laughs> i'm just kidding yeah. but honestly what i love about what she says about you know she's done all that research around emotions and how through her research most people only had access to three emotions you know three yeah. core emotions and she can you yeah. share can you share that for those that don't know Renee, can you just share what, what you know of that research kathy please I think that, oh gosh, I think that, what would it be? Angry? Do you remember what they are? Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google them before I start making a stab at them. 
Yeah, I don't I don't remember them exactly at this moment. I you know, I apologize for that. It's probably like oh, no problem. I did put you on the spot completely. <laughs> so I'll Google while she But what I would say, um what what really is is significant for me is in order to really be in communication and relationship, it's essential yeah. for us to be able to report what's happening emotionally inside of us. You know, and to, and to know first where we are, right? So to know what is actually happening with me, what am I feeling? And usually there's, you know, at least three emotions occurring at the same time. You know, there's the top level emotion. And then if we dig a little deeper, there's more nuance and more emotion present. But then to be able to actually name it and report it in relationship, to let you know where I am and what's happening for me is an essential piece about yep. like understanding each other's worlds and creating a, a safe space with each other. And that's where empathy is our ability to have empathy for others, which yep. I believe is a commodity, empathy, deep listening, compassion. Uh, these are things that are, you know, feel scarce in this time that we're in. Yeah, like, I did my googling, Kathy, while you were talking. The, uh, her point is that we there's there's a total of eighty seven emotions we can experience, and uh, that there's different ones that some of us can access. I think is is your main point, isn't there? There's some people there's some people who may be limited for free. There may be some people who've done some work, and they're all up to sixty five, seventy. But the thing that I that I take from that is we've all got work to do and 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 learning and understanding is is part of that. So um absolutely do do Joan go and check out the work for Brene Brown if if you haven't. Um so when you're thinking about it, Kathy specifically, you obviously obviously think about the interplay between two human beings, don't you? That's that's yeah. that's that's your specialism. What um what what brought brought you to that subject like how did you get interested in that in the first place because people don't wake up going wow this is this is the thing that I was born to do but but how did it how did it come for you where did it come from well this is an interesting story but I would say it started when I was really little and um, it's a bit complex but growing up in South Africa during the height of apartheid uh, where I would see you know the disparity of races and everything that was going on around me. I remember at a very young age feeling a real ache in my heart around disconnection and, you know, uh, where I saw a lack of understanding and a lack of compassion and, and somewhat of a lack of humanity. And then, yeah. and then there was, you know, in my own family dynamic, when there was dissonance or upset and the things that were not said that really you know, you two come from a culture like I do, where it's very much about appearance and being polite and everything looks a certain way. And, you know, to actually talk about the elephant in the room was that just wasn't even available. Right. So everything sort of got stuffed in and then there were these upsets. And I just remember being wired to be super tuned into all the things that weren't being said yeah. and the, the disconnection that occurred. So that was where it all began. And then everything I did was around kind of breaking through that, that pattern that I saw in my own family and in the culture around me. Um, and, and really there was like an ache in my heart over it to see, to yep. see disconnection, to see misunderstanding. 
yeah i mean that that's a, a, that is a super interesting historical time to think of it and 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 be open to it for, for me it was obviously it just a different a different location but the thing that i noticed because my my family's irish but i grew up in 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 english school i noticed exactly the same thing because in my family there was no elephants in the room like everyone just everything was discussed and it was out there and that sometimes is really uncomfortable so when i go home like when i see my family go home for christmas both my sisters will let me know let me know really quickly what they don't like about me or what i've done to upset them but there's absolutely no elephants in the room but that's what i found strange about going to to school in england is wow there's so much stuff that people don't talk about and i found that i found that interesting I, and and obviously getting to know other families and stuff like that you'd just be sitting there thinking why is no one talking about that thing like there's yeah. a massive thing here but no one's talking about that thing they're all talking about something else <laughs> yes oh that's a fascinating story and then then what that just brought up for me was when there's an elephant in the room then it's about like how do you actually speak it in a way that i'm owning my experience i'm not attacking i'm not putting you on the defense and then it actually becomes more of a mutually shared conversation and that's another skill yeah. that's an art that takes a lot of people um it takes time and, and practice that is i would that is the hardest thing isn't it because when there is an elephant in the room i cannot stop thinking about that or anything else before i move forward but i have learned that that there is an art to how you address it and how you because because that elephant in the room can make people feel uncomfortable as you say it can make them feel attacked do you um you said there's an art to it kathy do you have any uh, any tips for us i sure do so the first biggest piece of it is learning to own our experience to know that everything that's happening inside of me is my experience and conversely you're having a completely different experience over there. Yeah. So when I share something that's difficult in a difficult conversation, it's really important to come from what's happening inside of me, what's the story I've made up about what you're doing or what I've interpreted from you, mm -hmm. to slow down and not make assumptions. So actually, you know, there's, there's a nice, I have a, a map for when something comes up, which yep. happens all the time in relationship you know you 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 walk into the kitchen and let's just say you know in this in this case it's your spouse you walk yep. into the kitchen and you see a particular look on your spouse's face or a particular body language and typically what happens is we see that and we immediately make a truth about it we make yep. an assumption oh they're mad at me or they're um you know whatever whatever the case is they're mad at something i said and yeah. then we we take that information and before we've even checked it out then we start to have an emotion about that and we go down a whole pathway mm. of emotion which then leads to action so maybe then i'm reactively angry at seeing my spouse's face and i go into a whole narrative of why they shouldn't be mad at me and they always and so on and so forth yeah and then i may i may start to pull away and disconnect yeah. yeah conversely what i could do is say hey when i walked in the kitchen i noticed i noticed maybe some tension what i perceived as tension on your face and the story that i made up about it is that you're mad at me yeah. and i 
feel the urge to pull away? What's really happening for you? Can you share your experience? That. Yeah, that's such, that's such, and, and I have definitely done that at least a million times. So I feel like I'm getting my own counselling session here, Kathy. Um, so that's that's a great trip. That's a great tip, isn't it? To acknowledge how you've how you've told it to yourself, share that out loud, and then start the conversation. I just think that's such a that's such that's such a powerful way of doing it. But it sounds like you you use the word slow down. That's that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because to do exactly what you said there, you've you've almost got to stop yourself and go into a different mindset. Any any tips on how you do that? Because because that would be my problem. Sometimes I I want to react quickly, and I, I, in that exact scenario, I think, oh, what have I done? I haven't done anything, and then yeah. you're you're suddenly into that bit. But if you yeah. slow yourself down and have that conversation, but I suppose. What I'm asking is how do you how do you slow yourself down to get yourself in that in that mindset, Kathy? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, you have to want to change the way you're responding. So there has to be a desire to transform. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like, yeah, that's such a good starting point. Right, because some people don't even want to change. Yeah. <laughs> the second the second thing is understanding with self-awareness what how do I know when I'm feeling triggered? Do I, you know, feel immediately defensive? Sometimes people get sweaty palms, you know, do I feel heat rising? So just to be able to have self-awareness of when I'm reacting or triggered, where do I go? Yeah. Typically when we're triggered, it's because this external um, information or thing that's occurred is triggering an old, younger part in ourselves. So when we're triggered, it's more the adaptive child inside of us that wants to respond. It's not from our frontal cortex, our what we, you know, what I might call the the wise adult in us. Yeah. So it's noticing using your breath is a beautiful yeah. tool to slow down and almost like soothe the younger part in yourself that that wants to defensively react. Yeah and like come back into your center to your breath into the moment and then take a different uh take it make a different choice yeah. ah this is what i'm noticing inside of myself yeah so that's that's sort of i mean i think it's a nuanced thing but that would be like the the first thing i would suggest so practices like breath breath work or just even noticing your breath, meditation, slowing yourself down, self-awareness things are really essential to change some of the relational dynamics. I love that, Kathy. And we're not we're not even onto the first question and I've learned loads already. So um Kathy, so for the context of our readers, um this is a research interview where we're looking into the top eight drivers of employee engagement and employee happiness. One of the global drivers of happiness that we see in all the countries that we look at is positive relationships. When um, we drill down into positive relationships, we get energetic connections, team dynamics, and personal relationships. Yes. Today, Kathy and I are going to specifically talk about personal relationships, which we've got the happiness sentence, Kathy. What what is a work relationship and what is a personal relationship? Because Presumably, all relationships are personal at some degree. Um, what What's the difference? Is Is there a difference? Yeah, in your, I'm, in, in your opinion? I'm sorry, Matt. I missed the last uh, couple of words because you broke. Okay, 
I might turn off my camera just for for Wi-Fi connection. Sure. Um, so my question is, is there a difference between a work relationship and a personal relationship? Because presumably all relationships are personal on, on some level. Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously every relationship has has sort of a unspoken set, like a context, right? We have different contexts yeah. for our relationship. And yes, you're right, all relationships are personal. And depending on the level of intimacy in a relationship, so, you know, in a personal relationship, I may share more vulnerable information. Um, of course, there's also different levels of work relationships. You know, you have somebody you've yeah. worked with for a long time and you may be more intimate with them. So there's, you know, I think there's boundaries um, that occur that may be different between personal and work relationships, but all relationships have some similar uh, qualities, I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, it's there's dynamics at play that, you know, sometimes there are power dynamics that come in and, um, you know, on the work level, depending on on the what's at play, the roles, there's there's just there's different factors that come. But in yeah. all relationships, the commonalities are to create a safe space, um, you know, to to understand that each person has a different perspective and a different experience, and to learn to listen, to understand. Uh, to create a space of empathy. Um, I mean, and and obviously there's just different levels of this. It's like turning up the dial. And I think intimacy yep. is really intimacy, context, boundaries are the, the differing factors in those two relationships. But they all have the ability to teach us things about ourselves. Um, and in every relationship, I believe that uh, those skills of listening, curiosity, um, empathy are all essential for creating safe uh, safe space. Kathy, how intentional do you need to be about relationships? Because there's some big stuff in there, isn't there? Like empathy, uh, boundaries, and so on. It, do we just let relationships flow, or do we need to be? Do we need to think about the relate type of relationships we want at work? My goodness. Well, I believe that the quality of our relationships is really ref, um, relative to the quality of our lives and fulfillment and happiness. So if I want to have good quality relationships, then yes, I have to be intentional in all my relationships. Um, and, you know, that's a commitment and a um but I think we all have unconscious patterns of relating. We don't see a lot of healthy models of relationship out when we look out. I mean, uh, most people I work with didn't grow up in families where they really learned to do relationship well. So true. <laughs> um, yeah. So whether you're in the work setting or personal setting, we if we're not putting intention, we're just going to operate um, from the patterns and and what we've seen and learned which you know so so if there's if we want to improve our relationships we absolutely have to put intention into them 
Kathy, what's to link these? That's such an interesting point. And to link this to the beginning of, of the interview, you talked about having to want to change, right? So yeah. if, that's so important. But in a team, let's take a team of 100 people. You may have some people who want to change and some that are not. And obviously, these relationships are codependent on each other. Do you yeah. have, because it was fascinating, just over here in, in England today, um, England cricket team have suddenly started to get good. And one of the things that's fascinating is, if you look at it from a work perspective, for the first time ever, the players seem to have what, what we would call psychological safety. Yes. Um, but what's fascinating, like, here's a comment that's on the BBC live today. It says, um, I'm just worried that the new style of play has masked the fact that the national game has been hijacked by two people's egos. So hmm. most people would see the new leadership style as, um, as creating psychological safety. But there's a fan here who clearly doesn't like change. This fan would like to go back to the previous days when England lose all the time. Well, all I'm making the point of here is that people are at different stages of this. So if you were in a, in a company and some people are ready to change, let's, let's ignore the people who definitely don't want to change, but there's people who are sceptical. How do we take them on the journey, Kathy? Oh, my goodness. That's such a good question. <sighs> well, I think that's where it comes down. Like, there has to be a shared vision uh, maybe shared values and and a strong why because we all know like you mentioned the cricket team when there is more of a sense of belonging and psychological safety it naturally creates a healthier org organism or organization and there's more like once people start to feel that I think that there's a natural inclination towards like a shared vision and a cohesiveness amongst the people you know so how do you inspire them to do that i think you have to really make it clear about what's what's in it for them like what maybe what are some examples of where this is really working well and why would you want to actually feel good <laughs> because that's essentially what it comes down to we all know yeah. that you know we put so much time into our work life um you know 40 plus hours a week of our time um why not have that be more meaningful and and uh more enjoyable really at the end of the day and have sort of a collective vision so i think you really have to make that palpable and real um, and create a strong why to help people align toward that vision of more of a healthy, happier workplace. It's, a, it's such, a, such a good example, Kathy. And I suppose if we do that, one of the points you said earlier, we don't always have, let's say someone's listened to this and we create this why and we create this vision and, and the skeptical people come on board. That is so true that there's not that many people don't necessarily have had those great examples in their life that that, that can role model. If you're yeah. a, a manager or, you're, or a leader and you're listening to this and you think, right, I want to start modeling positive relationships for my team. Have you got any tips on where we could start or how we could go about that? Well, 
I do. Oh, one thing that just came up quickly, though, is if you have one of those team members that are skeptical, it's typically because they have their own defensive strategies or protections um, based on their prior experience, right? With life, <laughs> with relationships. Yep. Um, imagine for a second what it would be like, even in the onboarding, um, you know, in the whole process of bringing someone onto that team, or maybe they've already been on the team, what would it be like to actually even relate to them in a different way where all of a sudden they start to feel like their opinion, their experience, they really matter, that you give them the space to be heard and seen, and they start to realize, oh, this actually feels really good, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. So that's one thing, like just in the manager-employee uh, relationship, I think there's a way that managers can really model that with employees. So, now, so I, want to I want to capture that, Kathy, for the for the listeners. So that's literally starting in the now with the person, isn't it? Correct. It doesn't have to be a second party. Let's observe these people over here. Let watch me do this. That is, that's just just doing it with the person who's skeptical, which is that's such a great easy place to start. So I just wanted to capture that, Kathy. Correct. So I think it's really important in a team for the leaders to have good competency around EQ and relational dynamics. And, and sometimes that takes training and coaching. And so that's where it begins. And then I'm a huge proponent for actually systematizing time in the schedule for like intentional uh, practice. Now, I know this is hard for, t you know, when we're looking at um, ROIs and numbers and, you know, the strategy of business and all of that, but to actually create time in the schedule with spaces for people to share, to learn the skills of listening, to learn the skills of reflecting back, curiosity, and, and things, you know, these sort of important relational skills, I think can do wonders on a team. I think, Kathy, especially, I mean, when you look at our data and our research where employee happiness is, is one of the top drivers of business performance. Yes. Then I look at that as a performance issue, actually, which is there's a lot, like, as you say, it, it feels good to work in a place that has strong personal relationships. But actually, for me, they're, they're the hallmarks of what you described there is the hallmarks of a high performing team making time for the things that actually matter. Um, so that that's my interpretation of, of you're saying to me, this stuff is important to practice. I obviously know the link between happiness and performance. So for me, putting your point and our data and research together just makes it just like anyone not practicing one of the vital ingredients of success. So I absolutely get that point straight away and just capturing that again to, to make time to practice, which is such a simple point when you said it, but I don't, I don't, I don't think it's something I'd, I'd intentionally thought about before. So I, I love that point and thanks for sharing, Kathy. Yes, definitely. I've done this a lot with teams where, um, you know, you come together on on a you know on a platform like Zoom or Google Meet and and there's very simple exercises that uh, that you know I offer where you put people in a room together, breakout room, and you have a very structured exercise to develop these skills. And it's amazing to see the impact 
on people and it's so fast you know people come back and report oh my goodness you know to just even take these five minutes to be like relate a little differently than we usually do has a huge impact on people's uh, sense of connection and sense of belonging. Um, I think this is really effective. And, you know, conversely, you look, I was just speaking with a friend who's dealing with a, a really large uh, company. He's, he's doing con contractual work, but part of what he is dealing with is every single aspect of that business. Nobody's really talking to anybody else. And the inefficiency, yeah. the inefficiencies in that model are enormous, you know, so there's, it really does create more efficiency, better communication, people working together better, and and essentially, um, you know, much more a, a higher performance, basically. Yeah, and Kathy, what about examples where it's going well? Okay, you've got strong personal relationships, um, but as you pointed out, you've got you get this in mergers and acquisitions, you get this in large companies where they've got two teams with very different cultures. And suddenly those teams need to work together. Maybe two companies have been acquired and put together or two teams have merged. I've definitely observed it before in one of the M&As we did where you actually ended up with two teams with really strong relationships. But that that was became a barrier to the two teams bonding because they were very they were, both teams became very tribal um, about what made their team great. A, a, any thoughts on where you've got two sets of two groups, strong personal relationships and you're trying to merge the two groups any any tips there i'm sure a lot of listeners um in our hr listeners will have, have been working on something similar to that kathy yes i think that that's quite a common issue actually i remember i worked with um an insurance company that had they changed their business model it's a little different but they had gone from independent offices to having more of a shared um you know shared team across 13 different leaders. And one way that we worked with them was to bring them together through the work of values, you know, to create stories about what's been so great about where they've come from and what were the values that um, were present in those, those stories that they told. And then you would find across the board that there were a lot of shared values that's and great. then we and then we created a you know speaking about aspirational stories like where do we want to go how does it want to feel what kind of values do we want to aspire to and then sharing stories across the teams really brought people together in this remarkable way so i think there's different ways to do that there's also you know you can create fun bring fun in and fun bonding activities to to break some of those barriers across teams. I think there's lots of different ways, but you essentially you have to make the time for it and you have to be intentional about it. You can't just expect when you bring two teams together that there's gonna be, you know, cross alignment. Yeah, there's that, there's, there's that word again around intentional, isn't it? And I, I love the point around jotting down or however you wanna do it, getting all the values down because you're, you'll probably find out there's so much crossover. There's probably more crossover on average, isn't there, than, than not crossover, which is the same country as the society, everything in there, um, which is that's fascinating. So next scenario, I'm going to check out you, Kathy. I'll keep checking my <laughs> scenarios at you. 
Um, new, <laughs> new CEO joins a company, realise that there's sort of low morale, people sort of break down. There isn't, there isn't, the relationships are not strong. Where, where would you start as a, a new CEO and, and your remit is to, to really get the company energised, refocused and moving forward? That, that's why you've been brought in because it hasn't been working. You're the new CEO. Where, where would you start, Kathy? Well, I'd start by finding out where people are at, probably through a qualitative survey or something like that, um, to find out what, what's led them to this place, you know, what hasn't been yeah. working, and really first understand uh, where they are, like really take the time to hear them. Yeah. Uh, that would be, you know, that would be the first thing to, to, to create that space. And then from that point, uh, based on either the qualitative survey or the, con you know, the qualitative conversations that I've had across, you know, probably from a, a large sample size of the organization, then I would probably, um, you know, really begin the process of like, of, of starting to develop relationships. And, and maybe it's going back to that why, because chances yeah. are that most of those people will be skeptical. Um, but what I find is, and you know, in working with some organizations, you often find there's a lot of good talk, but then the actual follow through and action is, is, uh, is lacking. Yeah, so true. And it just adds to the low morale and skepticism. So that's the important piece is to then create a plan but to follow through with the plan, you know, yep. and to take the time and the resources that it takes to actually implement those plans. Yeah, it's so, so true. We have a we have a product called a cultural assessment that that most of our clients take at the beginning of the journey with the happiness index. And people often talk about at the beginning about feedback fatigue. They say, "Oh, we've done lots of surveys before. People, I'm not sure people will want to do another one." And one of the one of the points that we always make from a, a data perspective there is such a thing as action fatigue but not feedback fatigue exactly on that point if if you collect data and do an assessment and don't do anything with it guess what people are going to disengage with it the next the next time round. absolutely absolutely and it's hard you know when you have a large organization and uh there's a lot of pressure and people are overloaded it's very easy to let the actual people part of the organization, you know, when, when there's not a direct financial gain, <laughs> um, it's it's easy to let that part go when you're putting out fires. Um, and it's essential not to let that go. So true. Um, Kathy, we're, we're running out of time. Um, I've got a couple more questions to ask you, but my next one is the, the broadest one that I like to ask people, which is obviously you're an absolute expert in this area, but what what have you learned yourself recently, Kathy, that's new where you thought, oh, I didn't, oh, I'd never looked at it like that before, or that's an interesting piece of research. What, so I suppose the question is, what, what have you learned recently, Kathy? Oh, my goodness. That's a big question. Um, I would say, so I, I tend to uh, lean more into esoteric. I'm not as data-driven as um, as other folks, but what I, what's really been getting me interested lately? I'm not sure if you're familiar with the gene keys. I, I've I've heard the phrase, but I'd love to know more about it. 
Yeah, Richard Rudd is the author of The Gene Keys. And basically, it's a system based loosely on um, human design, which is another map for to kind of make sense of who we are. Um, but the Gene Keys go through basically sort of a shadow expression. You, you, you gain like a profile based on data like your birth date and time and location and so on. But basically it goes through kind of shadow aspects of ourselves and then how to transform those shadow aspects to, to uh, express more of the gift of that in the world. But really what that all comes down to for me is so often we as humans, we all have both shadow and light in us. You know, we all have like the lower expressions all the way to a high expression of self. And so often we, um, you know, we cut off the parts of ourselves that are more difficult. And I think it's essential as a human being to really embrace the more difficult aspects of ourselves, and to learn to love and uh, to love all of who we are as a whole human being. Because in relationship, if, you know, if I don't embrace and transform those parts of myself, they're going to find their way out in sort of sideways behaviors. So rather embrace all of who I am and learn to embrace all of somebody else, as opposed to just saying, I only want these qualities. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think, yeah. No, that, I mean, that is fascinating, isn't it? And that sort of leans back to a lot of Carl Jung work. And we've, We've definitely had some podcasts on shadow theory and, and those areas before and mm. it, it creates an interesting conversation at work because values are obvious company values are often there to police a behavior and and one of the things we talk about when you recruit is not to end up with a monoculture because if you only recruit the same people then you end up with a complete lack of diversity which is bad for so many reasons we know now just just from moral reasons through to performance issues and if everyone thinks the same that's not that's not a great um, high brain to have. Exactly. So, I suppose this goes on to my final question, which is, in terms of personal relationships and recruitment, one of the things we stopped saying a while ago back at Happiness Index is rather than um, recruiting for culture fit, we say culture add. Like, who's going to add to this culture here? When it when it comes to relationships and and you're recruiting. Is that something that you should be considering as a recruiter? The 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 relationships and the impact on the relationships a, a particular recruit may have. Gosh, I think that would be essential. It tells you a lot about people. Um, are you are you asking me like should it be a part like assessing what their relationships are like or how they relate to you in the recruitment process? I think you've asked a better question than I did, but let's ask both of them. <laughs> so my first, my question was, do um, should you consider the impact of someone you're recruiting on the relationships of the people that are there? So you're bringing a new person in into a team yes. that could impact personal relationships. But I love your second question, which is, should you look into the into understanding how people look at relationships that you're recruiting? Which I think is the question you thought I asked. Is that right, Kathy? <laughs> I love the emergence of this conversation because I, I like the way you just turned that. Um, yes, I think we should, both of those things feel really important. So yep. 
How do they view relationships? What have their relationships been like in mm. in previous uh, organizations? Like, how do they speak about them um, and relate to them? And yes, absolutely, we should look at how how will they impact and how will they relate to the people in this organization? Will they be a fit? Will they enhance it? And not like like you said before, you don't want them to be the same. But are they are these people able to stay in relationship even if there's a difference of opinion? Yeah. Even if I see something distinctly differently, like the whole beauty of diversity is that we all have a very unique signature to offer. And of course, if we can bring out the the signature of each individual, it creates a much greater whole. Yeah. Um, so is this person able to both respect, to listen when there's differences, to seek to understand, to to honor, you know, somebody else's opinion? How do they maintain that? How do they relate? I think that's an essential piece to the recruitment process. Yeah. And it, even you talking about that, Kathy, made me reflect on one of my best ever recruits, which was someone that I interviewed and they worked for someone that I knew, but I never consulted the person I knew. But when they handed their resignation in, the person they knew contacted me to tell me why I shouldn't hire this person uh. because they were allegedly toxic and all these types of things this person wanted to tell me. But okay. I'd actually interviewed the person themselves. And I'd actually asked them just out of interest, why are you leaving where you are? Normal sort of questions. And they told me about the toxic relationships in the other organization, which was really refreshing because sometimes if you've had a bad experience with a manager or a leader, someone would advise you not to mention that in your interview because it makes you look bad. Yes. But the way they described it to me made me understood that they could actually identify a toxic relationship. So when the other person called me to put me off recruiting this person, I just remember thinking, well, because of the information I've been given from the other person, I feel comfortable with my decision because they've, they've explained why they didn't like working there. So I said, actually, no, I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd rather, one, I, don't, I, think, I don't think it's, it's fair for you to share that information with me because I don't think you're supposed to be doing that anyway. But two, this person's talked to me through their reasoning and, and I'm happy to, to work with them. So that was a good example of having, for me, an open and transparent conversation about previous relationships. And in those relationships, it hadn't gone very well, but I understood the reasonings and actually could understand that the environment they came from was was what I would call toxic. And I felt that person coming here would thrive. Um, so it's just it just came to it came to my mind that of the importance of interviewers and interviewees feeling comfortable about talking about negative and positive past relationships they've had at work. Absolutely. I love that example. And a good indicator is if somebody is just blaming, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. not sure how your recruit, uh, you know, spoke about it, but if somebody's blaming other people, that's a good indicator that that's probably not a good fit. But you can hear in the way that they talk about it, uh, like you said, you can both feel is this. Uh, a reasonable like how do they show up in that in in that experience and it really tells you about the character of someone and how they do relate so yeah. I'm glad that's a great example of your story it's like, 
it's like when you read a, a, a review of a hotel, isn't it? Like not all one star reviews are equal. I always think if someone's written a hundred percent of their review in caps, I normally ignore what they've written. <laughs> but if someone's just actually said, right, this is kind of what happened when I got there, I got ignored. The room was dirty, blah, blah, blah. You can kind of, you, you can understand it, can't you? But there yeah. are certain things you just, there are one star reviews that I dismiss and the five star reviews that I dismiss because you can just tell they're not authentic. It, authenticity, I suppose, is the key point, isn't it? Oh, I, I can't believe it took us almost an hour for that word to arrive. <laughs> yes. Authenticity is key for sure. And we can, we can feel if we're tuned in enough. I mean, I think it's important to be able to tune in. We can feel when something's authentic and when it's not. Absolutely. Yep. Kathy, yeah. our time is up. I just want to say last question, I suppose, is a broad one. We're talking about personal relationships here. Your this is one of your areas of passion. Is there anything that you haven't shared with us today that I haven't asked the questions to get out of you thinking, oh, we're talking about personal relationships. We should have mentioned or talked about this thing. Is there anything, any ground we didn't cover that you think we should have today, Kathy? Mm, well, I do think that one of the important things in personal relationships is and you know this could be applied on the job or just at home that if you have a lot of trauma if you have relationship trauma in your past it's really important to get help with that because if we're constantly dysregulated by relationships that's not going to change until we heal ourselves kathy i'm i'm going to have to ask you what you mean by that when you say if we're constantly deregulated by relationships what does what does that mean well when you dive into the field of relationships we learn that you know our nervous systems are set up in a particular way based on our early experiences on how our caregivers bonded with us or not or you know unfortunately a lot of people have had traumatic experiences in the past and our nervous system basically records all of those experiences as memory in our body and we're constantly checking for safety unconsciously through our nervous system. Am I safe here? Am I safe here? And if I don't feel safe, my nervous system is always going to be fight, flight, freeze. And then it makes it really hard for me to actually be in relationship, to actually have positive okay. relationship. So if I'm somebody that's always uh, feeling that way and feeling unsafe, it's never going to be different. If you, nobody else can show up exactly the right way for me to feel better. I need to do my own personal work to heal and relax my own nervous system. And that will make me more available for actual relating. Got so, you. Yeah. So I would just add that piece in as well. And I guess that's probably why many of us, I include myself in this, we have patterns of mistakes that are similar and over and over again because we sort of just go into that mode when we're when we face the same or similar experience again. Is that is that fair to say or are we talking about something different there? No, that's fair to say. That's yeah. fair to say. So in order for us to have better relationships, then it's important to do that that personal growth work um, and the, the good news is is that there's a million modalities to help us get there 
Um, but it's important for us to recognize when we need that kind of support. Wow. Kathy, I have learned so much today. You've got one of the most, I feel so calm just speaking to you. I feel like I've learned loads. <laughs> um, I think uh, what I've taken away today is the intentional word and then the importance of it. The piece that I've taken away personally is I'm definitely someone who can't handle an elephant in the room, but I'll definitely become more measured and more calm about how I might deliver that. So I feel like the listeners have learned and, I, and I've definitely taken away some great advice, Kathy. So I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners that we've, well, I'm speak, I just know our listeners will have learned loads. Um, so I just want to say thank you. Oh, Matt, thank you so much. It's been such a delight to speak with you.